Hi moms, if you're looking to sell your engagement jewelry, Worthy is the perfect option. With over 45,000 satisfied customers, Worthy is the most trusted name in the business. Would I bring you anything less? Worthy offers competitive auctions and gets you the best deal possible on your jewelry. Plus, I've connected with Worthy on a special bonus offer for the Moms Moving On community. A $100 Amazon gift card when your jewelry sells for over $1,500. Ready to move on from that engagement ring? Get started today at worthy.com slash moms. That's worthy.com slash moms for the special bonus offer. This week on Moms Moving On. If there was abuse during the marriage, whether it was verbal, physical, whatever, emotional, it continues during and after the divorce by control over what the abused parent loves, which is their mm-hmm. children and time mm-hmm. with their children. Mm-hmm. So for the the narcissistic coercive control parent, the one that's doing the bad behavior, it's not really about the kid. Because right. if it was really about the kid, they wouldn't do that because they, they would know that they were damaging the child. It's about hurting the other parent. Life moves on. So why shouldn't we? This is Michelle Dempsey-Moltak, your host of Moms Moving On, navigating divorce, co-parenting, single motherhood, and moving on. Welcome back to another episode of Moms Moving On. I'm your host, Michelle, and today we're speaking with a fabulous woman, an attorney from my home of Long Island. Her name is Sandra Radna, and she's the founding attorney of the law office in her name, a general practice law firm based in Long Island. She's got 28 years of experience practicing law, representing divorcees since 1993. She founded her law office in 2012 and leads an incredible team of attorneys. She was also selected as the top 1% of family lawyers by the National Institute of Trial Lawyers and was also chosen as a lawyer of distinction in the areas of divorce and family law. And she's been recognized by the New York Times. I mean, I feel very grateful today. I'm sure you guys do too. Sandra, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Michelle, for inviting me. Well, I'm really excited. Two reasons. You went to Hofstra and Adelphi like me. Um, and I know you're good people just from that, but the, <laughs> the topic you wanted to talk to us about today is something that really needs a lot more airtime. A couple of months back, um, I spoke with a therapist on the podcast about coercive control and co-parenting. And one of the big questions is now that we know what coercive control is, what is what are the courts going to do about it? How do they prevent this and how do they stop it? And I know that this is something you're very knowledgeable on. So I'm really excited to talk to you about it today. I'm so glad you're talking about this because as with the internet, with social media, with all the information that's out there, people are a lot more aware of what's going on. So it used to be before that one parent was a bad parent, generically. But now we know terms such as a narcissist and we have learned what coercive control is. And just for a refresher for everybody, coercive control is when a parent says, if you don't do this, I won't do that. You won't get to come on this great vacation with me if you don't do this. And and they get them to think that the other parent is the bad parent without the child even realizing what's going on. And it could be mm-hmm. done to adults too, but it's done very often to children in the courts. So the, in answer to your question, what can the courts do to prevent it? The courts can't really prevent it from happening. 
what the courts can do is if the people that are going through it alert their attorneys and alert the court early enough, we can put things in place to maybe stem it and not have it evolve into something worse where a child is completely cut off from the other parent or completely doesn't feel good with the other parent because of what the parent who's exerting the coercive control is doing. And the way that the courts do that is to get therapy in place. It's very important. If you don't get it from the beginning, because what therapy does, and I'm sure your therapist talks about that, when the parent who's exerting the coercive control is saying things to the child that aren't true, um, the therapist kind of writes the bus, you know, like it tries to say, this is, you know, that the other parent never said this, or you were there when this happened, or they get them to see both sides of the story so that they don't have this view that's so slanted in one way, meaning the parent that's exerting the course of control. And that's how we take care of it. But really, it's a team. It's the attorney. It's the attorney's job to make sure the judge is aware in a way that's articulate, not in a sloppy shortcut way, mm -hmm. but in a way that really gives specific examples. Those examples could be text messages, emails, conversations that a person records, people, not records, recalls, Recall. because <laughs> the court doesn't really like when parents record each other. Mm -hmm. But what people don't realize a lot of times is that the testimony of a person that witnessed something is evidence. So if a parent says, this is what I witnessed the other parent doing, that comes in as evidence and it's okay. Then you have things that go along with it to corroborate that, showing that as a result of what the one parent said, here's what the child did. Yeah. And the therapy tries to help that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm a big fan of therapy for children and, and I get this all the time. Like, well, my child seems fine. Well, your child is creating a narrative in their own head that can be very scary for them and cause a lot of anxiety. And I think even in a, a non high conflict situation, that therapy is so important, but I love that you talk about it. So here's the challenge that I see a lot. Um, I guess from, you know, I deal with a lot of attorneys and judges and also clients who have no clue what to do when this type of stuff comes up. And I'll hear that, you know, every judge is sick of hearing that, you know, the ex is a narcissist and the, the you know, the mom is a gatekeeper. Like th this is, this is what they hear all the time and they don't even listen to it anymore. Is that true? I think the words, it's true. I think that it feels like everybody's labeling somebody as a narcissist and everybody's using those buzzwords. But there are other ways. And attorneys, we're wordsmiths. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to be able to articulate an argument to the court so we can strongly advocate for our client. You can say what's happening without using those words if you can see that your judge is annoyed with the word. Because really, a narcissist can mean different things to different people. And everybody's situation is a little bit different, how that mm -hmm. narcissistic behavior manifests, mm -hmm. so, uh, how it's working in the case. So really, what I like to do is be very specific with examples of what's going on. The court always cares about the children. They really don't care about the divorcing parents. You mm -hmm. know, you can, the divorcing parents is kind of, kind of like a side thing. When you say that the child is being affected, that this life is going to be affected going into adulthood, so we're not going to have a well-adjusted, healthy, happy adult you know, those are things that the judge does listen to. So instead of just saying, 
he's a narcissist or she's a narcissist or he's using coercive control. Those are buzzwords. Talk about what I they're hate, doing. Sandra, and, I'm so sick of the buzzwords. Everybody's hanging on these buzzwords and expecting to ride them through their divorce and, and have some sort of outcome. And I'm so sick of the buzzwords. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't describe it. It's just like if one person says that it's beautiful out, it might mean... I, different things. One right. person might love rainy weather. So just a silly example, but I'm just saying well, no, it's the truth. when you just use the words, those buzzwords, it doesn't really describe what's happening. Be specific mm -hmm. is is what I always say is the key mm -hmm. to, to doing a good job for your clients, being an excellent advocate and to getting your points across to any judge, to any judge, even the judge that everybody says is the worst judge in the world and you can't tell them anything. Yeah. Well, I, I, you hear that a lot. And, yeah. you know, I think <laughs> attorneys and judges, I think at, you know, uh, a bad rap based on, you know, at 50% of the people are going to be upset with them every time. Right. So it's like, right. it's, it's hard. It's hard to gauge, but anyway, client, my clients have a lot of frustration on that topic. How can I prove, or how can I prevent it from continuing? Is there, you know, is there ever a situation where, rights are taken away from a parent who is engaging in this coercive control. Absolutely. So if you're making your paper trail, so you first write to the opposing counsel and you say, here's what's been going on. And then you have an attorney for the children that's appointed. And then after that attorney for the children meets with the children, they say, yes, this is what hap is happening. And they say, here's the things that have to be put in place. Therapy has to be put in place. Both parents have to be available to speak to the therapist. And you can no longer disparage each other, whatever it is that they say. If that parent continues to violate it, because some of them get very brazen, they they really don't care. You know, they're, they're just going to keep doing it because they'll keep pushing the envelope and pushing the envelope and pushing the envelope because they're getting away with it without consequence. If you keep bringing up to the judge and here's this new thing that happened, not keep going back to what happened, you know, three years ago. Here's the new things that are happening. And you have a therapist that sends in a report that says, here's the things that mm -hmm. the child is saying. You mm -hmm. know, they feel guilty if they're not if they're not with dad because dad said that when he's not with them, you know, that's coercive control also. I'm so depressed without you. I don't know what I would do without you. So the child feels that they have to be there. <sighs> Those aren't things that should be said to a child. It's putting the child in a, a difficult situation. So if the report comes back from the therapist that says that, and it's given to the judge and everybody sees it, yes, that parent will be put on supervised visitation until they learn. And maybe they'll do therapeutic visitation so they could teach that parent, here's the right way to speak to your child. Um, and those are the types of things that can be done. You know, it's crazy, not crazy. I guess it's good that now we're seeing a shift because there's not like, I'm 39 years old. My parents got divorced when I was eight. I don't know a single one of my friends or colleagues or contemporaries who experienced divorce as a child who did not have to deal with some level of coercion or parentification or one parent saying negative things about the other parent. So I guess my question is now that we're in the space of recognizing it, do we have to call a, every negative behavior by the ex or every negative behavior we might personally engage in a form of coercive control? Like, is there a, a clear line in the sand of what is and what isn't? I don't think that it has to be that we're labeling coercive control. I think we have to call out the behavior. We know that it's coercive control because as a 
general topic, we know what it is and it's manipulation is, is basically what coercive control is, but it's being done in a way that the child doesn't realize that it's manipulation because they're, they're being given good things. You know, you'll mm-hmm. do this when you're with me or you never get that when you're over there, you get that when you're over here. And it, and mm-hmm. it could be that the child gets to, you know, stay up all night on their phone, you know, like I, it could be anything that yes. they're allowed to do at the other parent's house. I don't think you have to do a, a label. I think the important thing is to show how it's affecting the child, how it's affecting the child's relationship with each parent, what what's happening. And is this child going to be affected in their adulthood? And that's what we're trying to protect. I don't think anybody, any child comes out of divorce unscathed. I heard something on a a while ago called emotional concussions that we can have post-traumatic stress. It doesn't have to be that you were in war and, and saw people being killed. It could just be a drip, you know, of things that are happening over and over again that are going to affect you so that when you're older, you don't even understand that somebody raising a voice is a trigger for you, but you you feel so upset or if you hear mm-hmm. people arguing that that's a trigger for you because of what you went through in your divorce. And that's why if you could have a therapist as early on as possible, I always suggest to my clients right from the beginning, especially if they have little kids, just get a baseline. While you think everything is good, let's get a therapist in place. Let's build up a rapport between yeah. the child and that therapist so that when something happens, they're comfortable enough to talk to the mm-hmm. therapist because it's hard to talk to mom. It's hard to talk to dad because a child without even realizing it wants to please each parent has different conversations with each So parent. true. So and true. if they can be talking to a third party that they've built a rapport with, that they trust, that they're comfortable speaking with, that they have that outlet that they can say, I'm really uncomfortable when mom and dad are talking to me about these things. I don't want to be the one that tells mom that I'm going to be coming home late tonight. I don't want to be the one. And and they're not comfortable saying that to either parent because they want to please either parent. So I, I just think that it's something that you chip away at yeah. throughout the proceeding until you get to a good place. They're calling it the Bible for all divorcing moms. I can't believe it, but that's what they've said about my book, Moms Moving On, Real Life Advice on Conquering Divorce, Co-Parenting Through Conflict, and Becoming Your Best Self. Moms Moving On is filled with practical, actionable, and empowering advice from someone who's been through it and come out on the other side, me. Through inspirational stories, rituals, journal prompts, and my guidance, You'll learn how to navigate your divorce with confidence, adjust to life as a single mom, shift your perspective to find your way back to your best self, and create the life you truly deserve. It's available in paperback, hardcover, audiobook, and Kindle. So go get my book. I promise you won't regret it. Class is in session and it is time for you to master your divorce. I am Michelle Dempsey-Maltak, the creator of Moving On School, and I want to welcome you to Moving On 101, the one and only class you'll need in order to master the concepts of getting divorced and co-parenting your children so that you can truly move on. In this eight-week program, we'll meet week by week to help you move past each phase and first of the divorce and co-parenting process so that you can move on in an empowered way while making the best decisions for your children. Visit www.momsmovingon.com to apply for our next semester of Moving On School coming in January.
Okay. So now everybody who's listening to this, who may have been experiencing this for years already, and their child has been stuck in the crosshairs for a long time, they're all probably thinking, is it too late to save my child from the manipulation and the effects of it? Is it too late to get a therapist? Is it too late to like take charge and have this all stop? Or is it just a matter of getting involved really early to have a better outcome? I would say it depends. And it and the, it depends is the age of the child. You know, if your child is 17 years old and they're already firmly in that mode of whatever the other parents hold them, that's very, very difficult. If the child is eight, you have more of a chance. Mm-hmm. So I, I really, there's a real gray area. Every case is specific that the, the um, answer is to try to get them into therapy. There's really nothing that a court order could do that's going to change what's going on because the court's not in your house. The The change comes with the child and with the parents. So mm-hmm. in a really bad situation, the way the court does help, it can order the parents into therapy. Or not together if it's an abusive situation, but it could order, for example, the parent who's exerting the coercive control over the child that they have to participate in therapy. They have to go to therapeutic um, visitation. Now, what therapeutic visitation is, if people don't know, is it's actually a therapist watches the interaction between the parent and the child and afterwards talks to them and say, when you were directing the child to do this, the child didn't want to do that. And these were the cues the child was giving you. And these are the words that you should use that might be better. And it teaches when it works well, it teaches the parent how to parent better. The problem is, if you're dealing with a narcissistic personality, sorry to use the buzzword that I said we shouldn't use, but But, if you're dealing with a narcissistic Mm -hmm. personality, they really don't care what anybody says because they don't, it's about control for them. Mm -hmm. And abuse is about control. That's what it's always about. So if there was abuse during the marriage, whether it was verbal, physical, whatever, emotional, it continues during and after the divorce by control over what the abused parent loves, which is their Mm -hmm. children and time Mm -hmm. with their children. Mm -hmm. So for the the narcissistic coercive control parent, the one that's doing the bad behavior, it's not really about the kid. Because if it was really about the kid, they wouldn't do that because they they would know that they were damaging the child. It's about hurting the other parent. And therapeutic visitation works if you if you do just have two parents that can't stand each other but really love the children in a healthy way, then it really works because they're like, okay, I realized it should I didn't realize it was hurting the children. Now that I realize it's hurting the children, I want to do something about it. Yeah. It really works. But if you have someone who just doesn't care, which unfortunately happens very often, it's just about them. It's not about the kids. It's very difficult to, uh, to really get everything back on the right track. I'm yeah. sorry to say, yeah, I'm sorry to say it. But, but uh, the good news is that it's one reasonable parent that a child needs in an unreasonable situation to uh, thrive and be okay. So even if there is coercive control and you're dealing with a high conflict narcissist who cannot tame themselves, if you can stay in your lane and do your best, your child still has a chance. Don't worry about that. Okay, so I have one last question for you. Okay. And that question is... Adult children who have experienced this type of coercive control, what what does that look like in terms of their relationship with their parents? Well, there's a, a range. There are some people that do not talk to their parents at all. The other parent that was 
the one that the child was dissuaded against. Um, there's some that maybe will talk to them, but don't share anything with them. Mm-hmm. So they'll talk to them, but they won't share anything about their lives. They'll stay mm-hmm. in touch, but they you'll never know what's going on, which is also hurtful. Yeah. Um, there's ones that will see the parent, but they'll never actually see them on the holidays. So I'll see you the day after Thanksgiving, you mm-hmm. know, not on Thanksgiving. So there's all varying degrees of it. There are some people though, that through not the parents, maybe through somebody else, it could be a family friend, or it could be another relative that ends up finding out that the things that they were told about that other parent were not true. And those children do come back when they find it out. Unfortunately, say for example, it was a husband and wife. I actually have this situation where I was representing the party that was not doing the course of control, you know, that the adult children just have nothing to do with them. And they, they, the claim by the other parent was that they were abused, you know, Mm. and, which never happened. And it didn't matter. The children grew up in the house. The children were already older when the divorce started. It was shocking that they believed it, but they believed this narrative and they just cut off all ties with the other parent. And it's very difficult, but there's other ones that say, you know what? I don't think that makes sense. You know, they think about it differently and you don't know which one it's going to be. You know, there's really no rhyme or reason to it. I think that what a mistake the parents make because it's such a mixed message from the courts. So the courts say you're not allowed to talk about the court case with the children and you're not allowed to talk about anything that's going on. So usually the parent that's exerting the course of control is telling them everything. You know, your other parent is doing this, your other parent's doing that. And even the judge said this, even the judge said that. And the other parent's like, I'm going to stay in my lane. I'm going to do exactly what the court said. And I'm not going to say a word. The problem with that is not that they're wrong, but that narrative is allowed to exist. So what I believe is that, true, you should not involve the children in the adult problems. You shouldn't be talking about the case saying, I'm taking your other parent to court tomorrow. However, if your child comes back to you and says, my other parent just said you did A, B, and C, instead of saying, I'm not going to talk about it, you know, this is not for you to talk about, the answer should be that never happened. And here's how you would remember that never happened because remember we were together on this day and this is what it is without bad mouthing the other parent just say that never happened and i would never do that to you and you know how much i love you the other thing sorry this is also a great opportunity in these moments because i know this has happened to so many of you where you teach those four big skills that bill eddie talks about skills for critical thinking and offer the child the opportunity to think about but does this sound like something mommy would do? Or have you seen mommy do this? And can we have different opinions and still agree? You know, and so that's that's a great teachable moment in my co-parenting specialist experience. And that's exactly right. You hit the nail right on the head. That's the exact words that you use with the child because it makes them think. And if you don't address it in the moment, if you wait till, you know, 10 years later to say, remember all those things that your other parents said about you, you know, about me, it wasn't yeah. true. Here's the proof. Well, it's already been ingrained, you know, it's already been put there. So it's, it's kind of good to address it as it's happening. So, you know, I, I can remember back to my own childhood being eight years old and my dad saying things about my mom that like, even then I knew were not true, that I was just kind of like, okay. And what that did for me was make me fearful of him and 
scared to be around him, frankly, and I ended up estranged from him. And so I do think we have to also call out the fact that like, kids know what they feel. You can tell them anything, but they know what they feel. So I want to give you hope if your ex is bad mouthing you left and right, children ultimately figure it out and they're going to go with where they feel safe. And if you're a safe space for them, like sometimes that's more than enough. That's a hundred percent right. Because what happens is they'll believe it for a while. And then when they get older, they'll start saying, well, here's the stable parent. Here's the one that's mm-hmm. always there for me. Here's the one mm-hmm. that's always got my back. And here's the one that's not trying to bribe me. Mm-hmm. And you're right. They do see that eventually, but it's a, it's a long man. road. It is a long road. Well, they're very, very lucky, these families, to have you there to guide them. And your book, which is the ultimate divorce court guide, <laughs> um, this is what you need to read, everybody. You're getting divorced. Now what? It's basically like, the, the legal version of my book. And so I highly suggest you read this one also because it's going to really help you understand the legal process. It's like a what to expect when you're expecting, but for court. And I love that because I kind of did it from the mindset of like being a mom and getting divorced, what to expect, you know, and I don't obviously know the legal process, but you do. So I am so <laughs> glad you. that this is available and I will link this for all of you, I highly suggest you check you check it out. If you're at the beginning of your divorce process or you're divorce curious, it's going to give you some good insight. Sandra, thank you so much for being here with us today. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? I would say that whenever you're doing agreements for your divorce, which is really important, including when you have these situations, the more specific the agreement is, the easier it is to enforce. Mm-hmm. So You go through a whole divorce process, you get an agreement, just make sure it has every single detail that you need to have in there. Because then when you go back to court, when your ex is not doing what they're supposed to do, the court will be able to have a consequence for them. If it's too general, it doesn't work. Right. Amen. That's great advice. That's why I say detail is your best friend on those parenting plans. Thank you, Sandra, for everybody listening. Thank you for being here. All the best in this new year. And we will see you next time on Moms Moving On. So you want to be a divorce coach, but the term divorce coach is a broad one because there is just so much you can cover in the world of moving on. Maybe you find yourself gravitating towards clients with high conflict co-parents, or perhaps you have a knack for helping women pull themselves out of bed when they feel overwhelmed with single mom responsibilities. No matter your ideal client, the one thread that will unite them all is that they're moms and moms need a different level of support when it comes to divorce coaching. With my Moving On Method, you'll not only learn how to best support a client through their divorce, you'll also learn how to help support them as they transition into their new role as co-parents and managing a coaching business. I'm Michelle Dempsey-Moltak, Certified Divorce and Co-Parenting Specialist, and I founded the Moving On Method after years of working with clients from all over the world and seeing them all struggle with the same issues. In this training, you'll learn my five principles for helping a client with their moving on process, along with how to make your practice successful. Visit momsmovingon.com today to apply for my program. Thank you for joining us on today's episode of Moms Moving On. I hope you found today's episode to be helpful, inspiring, and give you the advice you need to feel empowered and strong as you move on. Don't forget to come say hi on Instagram at the Michelle Dempsey and drop us a line if there's a specific topic or subject you'd like us to discuss. Thanks. Stay strong.